Welcome to CalCast, your creator national podcast. Welcome, GNN fans, to another episode of God Network News, the podcast that tells you what God's doing around the world, not what CNN tells you, but what GNN tells you is going on in the world. If you're tired of listening to all of that crisis network news and you want to hear what God's doing, well, give us a listen. Welcome to another great episode of God Network News. In this episode, we are going to be letting you peek into a wonderful interview that was done by Missio Nexus, a wonderful organization that you need to check out. Missio Nexus has a podcast, and they did an interview of Dr. Werner Miske. Werner is an expert on the whole topic of honor and shame, which is a very important topic when we're talking about reaching out and sharing the the gospel with unreached peoples. Most of the people groups left in the world that are unreached are from a culture where honor and shame is paramount in their society. It is so important that it affects how they understand the gospel message and thus how we should be sharing the gospel message with them as well. Uh, they are much more honor and shame based than they are guilt and justice based. Most Western cultures are very guilt and justice based in their worldview, and so thus that affects how we share the gospel. It's very much a guilt based uh, message that we give when we're sharing with people about um, their sin and uh, their guilt. But with these cultures, we need to be talking to them about their sin and their shame because this is so important and it helps them to understand the gospel much more clearly. So this is a real key message as missionaries in the world today and those that are especially focusing on unreached peoples. So let's listen to this wonderful interview and what Dr. Werner has to tell us about this topic of honor and shame. Greetings from Missio Nexus, and welcome to the March 2015 edition of Leaders Edge Book Summary Author Interview. I'm Marv Newell, and I give oversight to the learning services of Missio Nexus. If you have not already done so, I encourage you to visit our website, missionexus.org, to learn about the many programs, products, and services available for the Great Commission community of North America. 
In this month's author interview, we feature an informal conversation with Werner Meska. He's the author of the new book, The Global Gospel, Achieving Missional Impact in Our Multicultural World. Now, our regular listeners know that every month we do uh, profiles in one book in three different categories. We do one in spiritual formation, another in organizational leadership, and also a book in some aspect of ministry or missions. And this month we are focusing on a thought-provoking resource that falls in the mission ministry category. It is a book that challenges us to understand the social dynamics of honor and shame found in Scripture and then apply them to our cross-cultural ministries. Again, the book is entitled The Global Gospel, Achieving Missional Impact in Our Multicultural World. Missio Nexus recently did a four-part web workshop series on this book with our author. Well, before learning more about this book, I'd like to introduce the author to you. Werner has been serving with Mission One since 1992. He is currently Executive Vice President, and his role is Director of Training Ministries. He produced the Operation Worldview and Partnership Curricula, and he leads training events focused on the biblical's honor and shame dynamics. Currently, he lives in Scottsdale, Arizona with his wife, Daphne, and they are members of the Scottsdale Bible Church, have two adult sons, and also two grandchildren. Well, Werner, we welcome you to this interview. Thank you so much, Marv. It's my uh, joy and my privilege to be with you. Thank you. Well, we really appreciate your new book, Werner, and so we would like to um, hone in on a few uh, specific questions about it. But before we do, uh, here's a couple of questions that are more broad in direction. Why why did you write this book? Uh, just what sparked the idea? Well, uh, back in 2009, I did a, a, a Bible study conference uh, with a ministry partner in in Lebanon, and uh, we had a small group of people who were just looking at the book of Philippians through, uh, trying to see it through the lens of honor and shame. And it was profoundly transformational for a couple of people in the group uh, who were uh, believers from a a non-Christian background, and uh, they um, said, wow, this has really set me free to share share the gospel more uh, freely and and boldly. And so I came home from that experience thinking, wow, this, this is a bigger deal than I ever thought. And so I began researching uh, and reading and doing some training and, and uh, writing about the subject of honor and shame and just found a gold mine. And so that stimulated uh, my desire to write the book. And I also suspect uh, from my own personal story of uh, when, my, when I was a teenager, my father uh, was mentally ill and, and uh, he's at home with the Lord now, but I experienced some real deep embarrassment and shame and and uh, from that, and I suspect that my own uh, encounter with uh, what I call the shadow of shame uh, also was part of what God used in my life to uh, to want to write this book and, and give me the passion to really create something that would be accessible to a broad array of Christian leaders and people involved in cross-cultural ministry. Very good. Well, we're so glad that you did tackle this topic. It is very helpful. 
Uh, Werner, if you were to boil down into just a sentence or two the essence of your book, what, what would be your big idea? Yeah. Well, one of the things uh, I would say part one is the fact that the pivotal cultural value of Bible societies is honor and shame. So that would be part one. Part two would be the majority of unreached and unengaged peoples in our world are from honor-shame cultures. And so the idea is that if uh, the, the cultural values of Scripture overlap with the cultural values of so many of our world's peoples, how can we articulate the gospel in a way that builds on that commonality of honor-shame between uh, the Bible and uh, so many of, of our world's unreached peoples who have yet to receive the blessing of Christ? Well, I think you kind of went into my next question, but maybe you want to elaborate a little more. And it, the question was just what do you hope to inspire or produce in the life of the reader? My hope, uh, Marv, is that, number one, people would just be thrilled and excited to see how the honor-shame dynamics, when we understand these dynamics, how it gives insight and sheds light on why the authors of Scripture wrote the way they did. And some of the strange things in the Bible that are so culturally foreign to us as Westerners, uh, it it helps us understand um, these cultures. So my hope is that as people go through the global gospel, not only will they have a fresh uh, appreciation and affection for the holy word of God, but also they'll have insight in how to relate better to people from honor-shame cultures and and ultimately Mm -hmm. to be able to share the gospel uh, using the language and and thought forms, if you will, of of, uh, honor and shame that are present in Scripture. Well, Warner, I'd like to get into some specific um, content of your book at this time then. And my first question to you is this. What do you mean by a culture that is embedded in what is, quote, honor and shame? Just how do you define and describe these terms? Yeah, we define um, honor as, uh, and this comes from Jerome Nairi's book, Honor and Shame in the Gospel of Matthew, but honor as he describes it, is the worth or value of persons both in their eyes and in the eyes of their village, their neighborhood or society. And he says the critical item is the public nature of respect and reputation. And we define shame this way. This is from Brene Brown's uh, uh, work. Uh, The intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's the fear of disconnection. And so what ties these two definitions together is the social, uh, relational, or public aspect of of the dynamic. So um, uh, one African theologian uh, says it this way, and he quotes uh, the Western philosopher René Descartes, uh, who is, has coined the phrase, I think, therefore I am, and he modified it to describe people in honor-shame cultures this way, quote, I am because we are, and since we are, therefore I am. So this idea shows that in an honor-shame culture, people are 
really immersed and completely embedded in in uh, their community and their sense of individuality is far less than what we uh, uh, per- how we perceive ourselves in the West. Mm, yes. Well, then, what's the difference between those cultures that emphasize honor shame with other cultures that are more like ours that value guilt and innocence? Just where's the disconnect between the two? Yeah. Well, in in guilt innocence cultures, I would say we uh, uh, are more individualistic. Uh, you know, we uh, we grow up with the uh, uh, kids grow up in the West with the phrase, uh, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" You know, our parents and some of us ourselves have have been raised in that sense of uh, individual uh, dreaming and pursuit, and and that that kind of idea is is not as common in an honor shame culture because they're so embedded in their family, in their neighborhood, their community. And uh, of course, people dream in all kinds of of, uh, cultures. And it's not ever a question of either or, like we're completely one way or completely another way. But in, in, uh, in, in guilt innocence cultures, we are just more individualistic. And honor-shame cultures are more collectivistic, or um, sometimes uh, anthropologists call that a dyadistic uh, culture, um, where the individual is just embedded in the group. And uh, consequently, laws are not as important as relationship in uh, honor-shame cultures. Uh, In the West, uh, our society is ruled by laws, and in honor-shame cultures, of course, they do have laws, but there is a greater emphasis on relationship and how we are perceived by our communities. Well, then what are some of the blind spots that we in the West have towards those cultures that have honor and shame as their pivotal cultural value? Okay, well, I would say two things. Number one, when we do see honor shame at work in in other cultures we normally see them as unethical values in other words we only see the dark side of honor shame and to be sure there is a dark side i mean all of us i think are familiar with the honor killings that have taken place in in uh, um, uh, some of our own cities uh, in the in the West, as as people from South Asia and the Middle East have come to uh, the United States, and they they discover that there's a clash of cultures between East and West. And when when someone from an honor shame culture shames their family, sometimes violence and bloodshed is the result. Uh, we see that at work in in other things like. Uh, uh, if, uh, acts of terror. We'll talk about that later on, I think, a little bit, Marv. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that uh, um, that's one of the things. We only see the negative side of honor-shame. Uh, there is a bright and glorious side to honor-shame cultures, which is very evident in the scriptures. Uh, but So that's blind spot number one. We only see the negative, unethical aspects of honor-shame. Uh, the second thing is that uh, as Christians, we don't see the honor-shame dynamics in our own Bibles. 
we don't realize that there are twice as many references to the word shame and its derivatives than there are to the word guilt and its derivatives in in the Bible. Uh, we don't when we read the Bible, we're not alert to the very uh, uh, the myriad honor shame dynamics that are in Scripture because our own style of living is not in that. Um, it doesn't use that language. We don't incorporate the. We don't live with this this awareness of honor and shame nearly to the degree that that um, uh, the authors of Scripture uh, did. So those two main things, we see honor mm-hmm. shame as unethical. Number one and number two, we don't see honor shame in our own Bibles. All right. Well, then, if that's the case, give us some biblical examples of honor and shame that you advocate permeates the scripture? Well, the first uh, honor-shame dynamic that we talk about, it's the first of ten in, in, uh, in the book. The first one is called the love of honor. And that's simply uh, the a recognition that people in the ancient Near East um, had as a primary motivation the pursuit of honor and glory. Um, we call this uh, simply the love of honor. Uh, Jerome Nery quotes Aristotle, who says, uh, honor is, the, is clearly the greatest of external goods. It is honor above all else that great men claim and deserve. And uh, the Roman Empire was saturated with values of honor and glory. And, and, uh, uh, and so this is the, the context. This is the social context and emotional environment in which uh, the scriptures were written. So we see this, this uh, 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 the love of honor and correspondingly the, uh, the fear of shame to be something that goes from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, another uh, prominent value that I think many do not recognize as an honor-shame uh, cultural value, but I would call, uh, we call that the, the honor-shame dynamic of purity and uh, purity codes uh, that we see in the, in the uh, book of Leviticus, for example. Who is included? Who is excluded? Uh, as someone moves toward holiness, they, they gain honor. As someone moves toward being common or unclean or even abomination, they move toward exclusion and shame. Uh, if you want to see a very uh, uh, crude and, and uh, uh, powerful example of how uh, shame equates with uncleanness, all you have to do is look at Ezekiel chapter 16, and you'll see how God's unfaithful bride is described in very shameful terms. So the concept of purity, purity language that goes from the Old and all through the uh, New Testament uh, this is part of the honor-shame dynamics which are in Scripture. A third one would be something that I call a motif of Scripture, and that is honor status reversal. And by honor status reversal, uh, we mean someone's, uh, uh, we define that as someone's honor status or, or a family or community or nation, a people whose honor status has been reversed either from shame to honor or from honor down to shame. And uh, in the stories of, of the great stories of the Bible, uh, in many parables, in, in, in many uh, uh, 
historical and prophetic books, we see this dynamic of honor status reversal appearing again and again and again. Just, in, just like in a symphony, you'll hear a musical theme uh, at the very beginning, in the central part of the piece, and in the concluding a part of a, of a right. great symphony. You'll also see this motif of honor status reversal again and again in Scripture. Well, that's a very good uh, taste of three of what you have of ten um, ways of showing honor shame. I know the others are just as important. We'll let our listeners grab your book and uh, read up on the others if they want to dig deeper. Well, let's get a little practical about this, uh, Werner. Um, can you give us some examples of a gospel presentation that has as its focal message the guilt innocence and then, then one that would focus more on honor shame could you kind of show the difference between the two yes i think most of us are familiar with uh, the gospel presentation called the four spiritual laws which was developed uh, decades ago by campus crusade for christ and and today of course that's uh, a ministry known as crew and uh, God has used this presentation mightily, mightily. I've met numbers of people who've said, hey, that's how I got saved. And, and uh, uh, so we in no way want to disesteem what God has done uh, in using uh, this great uh, uh, resource to introduce people to Christ. However, we also can say that... Um, uh, the very name of this gospel presentation, the four spiritual laws, reflects a legal um, framework for the gospel. And mm-hmm. we do not actually have to uh, articulate the gospel using laws. We can uh, articulate the gospel using stories. We don't have to rely exclusively on propositional truth. Uh, uh, of course, the presentation is geared to individuals. It talks about you as an individual. You must make uh, 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 a a faith commitment to Jesus Christ. Furthermore, it talks about forgiveness of sins. In other words, all of us have had things that we've done in our behavior that are uh, in need of forgiveness. We have done things wrong. We have behaved badly. We have committed sins. And this uh, may be distinguished from um, uh, something that's a little bit more abstract, perhaps, but it's the the needing forgiveness from our sin, our sinful being. It's not just our sinful behavior for which we need forgiveness, Mm -hmm. but it's also for our sinful being. And behavior is more about guilt, whereas... uh, Shame and being is is or our our being is more about shame. Guilt is sort of externally focused. Shame is more internally and heart focused, and and has to do with the essence of our being. So, so a gospel presentation like the four spiritual laws focuses on a a legal framework. There's a legal framework which focuses on forgiveness for sin as guilt and based upon laws of scripture propositional truth in contrast um, there's something called the father's love booklet uh, which we developed a, a couple of years ago the father's love booklet tells the story of the prodigal son 
and it shows how the prodigal son's descent into shame uh, alienated him from his father. And then we show how the father, in his uh, desire to have his son reconciled uh, back to his family, uh, went out and, and met the, the, uh, this prodigal as he came back from his shameful exploits. And, and, uh, and the father restored the son's honor. He covered his shame. He covered him with his favorite robe and gave him a ring and uh, uh, signifying his, his honored place in the family and his authority. He gave him sandals for his feet. All of these things signify the father restoring the honor of his son. And then we build a bridge to the gospel of Christ in the booklet and uh, use verses from scripture. For example, he who believes in uh, he who believes shall never be put to shame. This is a, 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 in Romans chapter 10. It's in First Peter. Of course, it quotes uh, Isaiah. And we show how the work of Christ on the cross has uh, 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 de- demonstrates that God is like a father willing to suffer shame for us that we may be reconciled. So in a nutshell, Marv, that's a, that's a contrast between a guilt-innocence legal framework versus an honor-shame um, framework for the gospel. Yeah, very good. Very, very clear. Thank you, Werner. I'm going to extract a quote from your book, Werner, where you say, what we have seen is that shame is more likely to lead to hurtful behavior, whereas guilt is more likely to lead to healing behavior. The pathology of shame for individuals and families can be terrible and impact generations. But when that pathology of shame impacts whole societies and nations, it becomes truly horrendous. Um, give some examples. Do you have one or two that how that has played yeah. out? Yeah, well, this is an important, first of all, an important distinction between shame and guilt. Guilt is more likely to lead to healing behavior because people can apologize for what they have done. So if you take the phrase, I did that horrible thing, the emphasis is on the words did and thing. I did that horrible thing. But if the emphasis is on the shamefulness of the person, if a person is shame-prone or if they're in an honor-shame environment or culture, the emphasis is on the word I. I did that horrible thing. So there's, there's a deep, it's not just a flaw in your behavior, it's a flaw in your being. And mm-hmm. when this is played out uh, on, a, on the broad stage of human history, we see horrible things happen. For example, in the Treaty of Versailles in 1919, Germany was uh, deeply excluded and shamed by the international uh, community. And uh, they had to pay back billions and billions of dollars in reparations. I was just reading about this this morning, actually. And it was just impossible for them to do that. Consequently, they as a nation were... uh, in a place of profound economic uh, dysfunction. You couldn't buy a loaf of bread. Uh, The black market was rampant. And what happened was Hitler Hitler came uh, onto the scene and he tapped into that humiliation, uh, that painful, shameful state of, of the people of Germany. He tapped into that 
to find a, a scapegoat, which of course ended up being the Jews or any non-Aryan people. And then mm-hmm. he also uh, rebuilt their military and tapped into the longing of the German people to have their honor restored as a nation. And so we can see in this example, shame led to hurtful behavior. Another common uh, uh, or prominent uh, event in the last century has been the whole rise of the, of, of the, uh, the war and terror, the Muslim uh, honor-shame competition. Uh, uh, the Arab world has largely been shamed by, by the Western world in many different respects. At least that's how they perceive it. Um, I was uh, uh, reading just this morning about um, the Charlie Hebdo attacks in in um, in Paris, and uh, the uh, Al Qaeda representative in Yemen took uh, responsibility for that. And what's so incredible is that he plainly states that this was based on honor, honor competition. He says um, he, uh, they denounced the unbelievers who insulted the chosen prophets of Allah and caused Muslims to awake and roar out of rage. Uh, then the heroes, these were the killers uh, the, uh, uh, in, in Paris, the heroes were then, quote-unquote, were then assigned, quote-unquote, to attack the Charlie Hebdo office in revenge, Congratulations to you, O Ummah of Islam, for this vengeance that has soothed our chests. Congratulations to you for these brave men who blew off the dust of disgrace and let the torch of glory, lit the torch of glory in the darkness of defeat and agony. If we don't understand that honor-shame dynamics are really at the very root of what's happening between uh, in this culture clash between East and West, between uh, uh, religious fundamentalism, Islamic uh, extremism, and uh, our culture, uh, our own culture, our own Western culture, we're not going to be able to address it effectively. We've got to get into understanding these root causes. And uh, so it's, it's quite a profound thing, I think, to realize. Yes, it is. Uh, right, you know, shame leads to hurtful behavior. It certainly does, and it is being played out on the world scene, as as you have beautifully mm-hmm. noted. Yes. One last question for you, Werner, before we close this up. Uh, you conclude that the gospel is already contextualized for honor shame cultures. Uh, can, can you explain that? How how is that done? Yeah, well, section three of the book uh, goes into how these ten different dynamics of honor and shame that we expound in the book actually overlap scripturally with verses about salvation, Christ's atonement, um, our need for forgiveness of sins. And so the gospel can be articulated in ways uh, incorporating each of these 10 honor-shame dynamics. And uh, to quote my friend Jackson Wu uh, from China, um, he says, the gospel is already contextualized for honor-shame cultures. This 
is a very exciting, and uh, I think it gives us a, a great hope because when we think about the unreached peoples of the world, the unengaged peoples of the world, when we think about the vast numbers who have yet to receive the blessing of Christ, so many of them are from honor-shame cultures. Why can't we build on the legal framework for the gospel and also include the honor-shame dynamics that are woven into the scriptures and use the thought forms of our of, of the audiences, of, of the people to whom uh, this blessing has yet to go, use their thought forms, use their emotional motivations, and see the overlap between what they, uh, 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 how they live and how they think, what drives them, and see that those very motivations are also present in Scripture and can be used to articulate the gospel. So, to me, this is very exciting uh, for us as we ponder our uh, ongoing work in the world Christian community uh, to bless the rest of all the peoples of the earth and to make disciples of all nations. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Werner, for allowing us to drill deeper into this insightful new book. Again, the title is The Global Gospel, Achieving Missional Impact in Our Multicultural World. Uh, And now that you all have listened in on this interview, you might want to encourage your staff to listen to it as well before your next meeting and then maybe spend some time with it in team conversation. Doing this could change the shape of how you do mission. Once again, the book is entitled The Global Gospel, Achieving Missional Impact in Our Multicultural World. We encourage you to purchase one for yourself and also one for your organization's library. Well, that wraps it up for the March Leaders Edge author interview. We know this has been helpful to you as someone passionate about the Great Commission. And on behalf of our Missio Nexus team, we thank you for listening in. Good day and God bless as you continue to go forward with him.